Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Good afternoon. I'm Greg Scordis, your host for Inside Sources. It's Monday, October 14th. And whether you are calling today Columbus Day, or whether you're calling it Indigenous Peoples Day. It's a holiday for a lot of us, a holiday for those of us like myself that go to court because the courts are all shut down today. I think the banks are shut down. A lot of other government entities are shut down for the day. So if you're not working today and you're just listening in, I hope you enjoy the show. If you are working today, thank you for working, and um, please enjoy the show also. I kind of walked through the studio today, and if you ever get a chance to come down to... KSL Studios. It's really a, a fascinating uh, venue. There is the television station set up, the the studio. There's the radio place where I'm sitting right now, and uh, Deseret News reporters everywhere. It's really quite a buzz. It's a fun buzz. And if you ever get a chance to come here and just see what's happening, there are TV screens everywhere, and people are just bustling, and people are on the phone. Um, the news never stops. Um, the courts might shut down and the banks might shut down. The liquor stores might be closed, but the news never stops. And this uh, this station is certainly a great example of that. We have a lot of things on the calendar for today. We're hoping to get both of the Salt Lake City mayoral candidates lined up for an interview. We have one lined up and we're waiting for a call from the other one. We have some breaking news um, regarding a... Fort Worth police officer, officer involved shooting and some things that have happened just within the last few minutes in regard to that, talking about um, how officer involved shootings are investigated, um, a case that we had very recently here in Utah down in Carbon County, another case not too long ago in Texas that had some similarities to the Fort Worth one that we're going to talk down or talk about early or later today. Um, we have a wild uh, Trump video parody that we're going to talk about. That you, um, it's too bad this is radio because it, you can't even describe how troublesome this is. And we're, we are going to go back to that Utah CEO that was found dead recently and uh, talk about what that means and where it's all going. But let me just talk to you about some of the weekend news updates as we're going here and give you my take on a few things. A... Influenza season began last week in Utah, and four people have already been hospitalized for serious illnesses. So what's the message there? Go get your flu shot. I'm, I'm, they must have some season every year where you go get the flu shot because I noticed virtually every pharmacy along uh, the streets there say free 
flu shots. And I suppose free is a relative term depending on what kind of insurance you have. But anyway, go get your flu shot. Uh, experts say it's a lot like wearing a seatbelt, a preventative measure that can save your life, even if it's only 50% effective most years. 50%? I haven't had the flu in a long time. I figured it was 100%. Um, last year, it killed. This can't be right. Last year, 90,000 adults in America were killed by the flu and 282 children. That doesn't seem right. Anyway, that's what the United States Center for Disease Control and Prevention said. More than 48.8 million people were infected, so that number probably does make sense. And more than 22.7 million medical visits, about a million hospitalizations during the 2017-2018 influenza season. I had mine a couple weeks ago. I've still got a little bruise on my right shoulder. It reminds me of it when I go uh, put my shirt on in the morning. But anyway, get your flu shot. And if you don't, you're causing us all problems. I, I don't remember the last time I had the flu. I don't remember when it was. I do remember, though, wanting to die. Get your flu shot. Second, the Royal Swedish Academy of Scientists has decided to award the Nobel Peace Nobel Prize, it's not the Peace Prize, to in economics to three individuals, Abhijit Banerjee, Esther Duflo, and Michael Kremer, for their work in reducing global poverty. In the last two decades, their new experiment-based approach has transformed development economics, which is now a flourishing field of science. So, to cut to the chase on this, apparently there are more than 700 million people who subsist in our world on extremely low incomes. Around 5 million children under the age of 5 still die of diseases that could be prevented or cured with inexpensive treatments. And half the world's children still live without literacy and attending school. So these laureates, and this is sort of interesting, and it's going to be sort of hard to break it down in a... In a uh, few minutes here, but they have, uh, they're, and they're, they're economists, they have a program set up to help intervene in educational and child health issues, and they've had some pretty good results. Let me just tell you a couple of these. One, in India alone, more than 5 million Indian children have benefited from effective programs of remedial tutoring in schools. Another example that they've done a very good job with is uh, heavy subsidies for preventing health care or for preventative health care that has been introduced in many countries. So we have these impoverished groups. We have impoverished countries who are unable to adequately address the health care issues of their people, especially their extremely young people. And these economists have figured out a way or I have and it's a sort of an evidence based program. It looks like they're doing here because it's been going for it looks like since the mid 1990s. But they were finally given the Nobel Prize in economics for that. Last, millennials are about to trigger a major changeover point for the U.S. economy. Speaking of economics. Uh, U.S. adults between the age of 21 and 38, which would include all three of my children, will prioritize necessity spending over the next decade. Um, it comes after a 10-year period in which the same age group lived off discretionary spending. 
said this means young adults will soon start to move away from buying Apple devices, craft beer, and Chipotle burritos, and instead spend their savings on big-ticket items such as houses and cars. We're going to sit back and watch how the millennials spend their money. It's been interesting to see we all grew up, at least my generation, grew up thinking and believing, maybe even having some reason to know that uh, our generation was going to be better off than the generation before it. We always hoped that mom and dad have a degree, we're going to have an advanced degree. Mom and dad have a house, we're going to have a a bigger house. Um, Those days are gone, and I think that most of us understand, and I think most economists would agree, that the upcoming generation, the millennials or forget the name of the generation that's coming even after that, are going to have a harder time uh, trying to make it in the way that we have. So um, it's certainly going to be an interesting group of pop of people when it comes to the ballot box, but it's also going to be interesting to see how they affect our economy. And as a lot of us get older, uh, those of us that are in our 60s are looking forward to retiring, looking forward to being able to jump in on the um, Social Security, is there going to be any money there for our generation, and is there going to be any money at all for the generations to come? So hopefully these Nobel economists will take a minute and take a look at that as well. So we've got a lot of the agenda today. We're going to um, jump into the Salt Lake mayoral race after the next break, hoping to get an interview with both Luz Escamilla and Aaron Mendenhall, the two remaining candidates in that. That race is, by my calculation, three weeks and one day off. The first Tuesday in November is Election Day. Mayoral races are held on an off year, so it's a 2019 race, but it's a four-year term, uh, replacing incumbent uh, Jackie Biskupski, who's done a good job. And it looks like we've got two candidates, both of whom are extremely polished and no doubt will do a good job as well. So stay with us. We'll be back in a few minutes and talk about the Salt Lake mayoral race. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do? in the face of an international disaster decades in the making. That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Inside Sources. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. Welcome back to Inside Sources. I'm your guest host, Greg Scordis, and happy to be here today. We do invite you to weigh in on the conversation through the Utah Community Credit Union text line. Text your comments to 57500. We do like those, and we might read some of them on air. Um, the call-in line, if you want to call and leave us a message, we may play those back at the end of the show, 801-575-7668, when we hosted on Friday. We had sort of a good deed um, segment where we had 
callers uh, call in with uh, sort of things that they'd seen or been a part of that were sort of un, un, unthanked good deeds, and it was it was really kind of cool to listen to that. Um, we talked a minute ago before the break about the Salt Lake mayoral race, and I want to weigh in on that, just my own perspective. Having run for political office before, I probably, some of you know, I ran for Utah Attorney General in 2004 as the Democratic candidate against a very, very popular Mark Shirtliff, uh, ran again uh, for Salt Lake District Attorney and in a primary or at least a convention against an a, a equally popular Sim Gill. I'm 0 for 2 in my elections and promised my wife I would never run again, but it was sort of a bucket list thing for me, and I was glad I did it. At both times, it was a, just a, a great experience. Hopefully, the two candidates that we have can share on that a little bit when we interview them later on. But if you recall, if you've been in Salt Lake uh, for the last decade or so, you know that we had a very popular mayor here in Salt Lake four years ago, Ralph Becker. He served, I believe, at least two terms, and I may I may be wrong, um, had uh, sort of the world by the tail, was a very popular mayor, was doing a very good job, and was up for his third term election, we'll say. Um, he had a interesting go with his chief of police. And if you recall, I'll bring it back to where we were back then, Chief uh, Chris Burbank, who was also very popular, and, and I work with police. I, I'll qualify what I'm about to say with that. And I work closely with Salt Lake City Police. And I would say that Chief Burbank was very popular. He was liked by his um, officers. He was liked by the community. He was not afraid to speak up and say some things and do some things. Uh, for example, when we were talking about rounding up um, illegal aliens um, and doing the work of ICE, Chief Burbank said that's not the job of local law enforcement. And I think that's been the position taken by most lo local law enforcement throughout the country. But he had his Waterloo, I guess, and that involved a allegation of some, um, not against him, but against one of his chiefs of uh, sexual misconduct. There was some concern in the administration that he hadn't been aggressive enough in terminating this officer, who, who was, in fact, uh, later terminated. And Ralph Becker, being his boss and his superior, uh, lowered the boom on Chief Burbank and fired him. It was in the wee months, maybe six months before the election. At the time, Ralph Becker was a shoe-in for Salt Lake City Mayor. There was no question that he was going to win. And Jackie Biskupski had jumped in on the race as a... Jackie's also a pretty popular kid. I've known her for almost my entire legal career, uh, having been involved in politics. And I think she served on... as either the Senate or the House as a Democrat known a very known commodity quantity and had worked with um Salt Lake mayor's office a little bit she jumped in on the race but this this incident for Ralph Becker and the way that he had handled the chief Burbank firing came back and really bit him hard and he became uh sort of a source of some news uh, that wasn't very popular to him, uh, the source of some contempt with his own police department that hurt him and really opened the door wide open to Jackie Biskupski, who served honorably since that, as 2015 a four-year term. And I would have assumed just being involved in local politics and working here in Salt Lake and living in Salt Lake most of my life that she was a shoe in to run again. 
She didn't, and we don't know why, and I don't suppose it's any of our business why, but Jackie decided that she was not going to jump into the mayoral race again for whatever reason, and that opened up a huge door. And you might recall it wasn't quite as bad as the Democratic presidential candidates, but we had at least a half dozen or more candidates jumping in on the Salt Lake mayoral race. And um, these were all, in my opinion, very impressive candidates. I mean, we had a we had a group top to bottom that seemed to be uh, the future of Salt Lake City, and a lot of people jumped in. And, and just like I said, having run for political office myself, I would say do it once in your life. It's, it's like doing a marathon or um, climbing a mountain. It's just one of those things for me that I just had to do. And these um, six or eight people also jumped in on that. Now, for me, being a political insider, apparently not knowing anything about it anymore, I thought Jim DeBacchus was a shoe-in. He was popular. He was well-known in the city. He was involved in uh, the legislature. He's involved in local issues. He, it was his to lose, and he did. And we don't know why. I think we'll go back and maybe have some of the political pundits look at this race in the months to come and break down how that primary fell apart for him. But it seemed like it was his to lose. And so we came out with two extremely qualified candidates, Luz Escamilla, who I've known for, oh, I would say 20 years, and Aaron Mendenhall, who I've only met recently. But is I'm incredibly impressed with both of these women. And I think Salt Lake City is going to be well served no matter which of these candidates comes out ahead in the election in the few weeks to come. Now, I know it's just Salt Lake City, and I have some of you are listening from outside of, of Salt Lake City, and why do you care about the Salt Lake City mayor's race? Well, maybe you don't, but Salt Lake City is the largest city in Utah, and it's not even, it's not even close. I mean, it, Salt Lake City dictates a lot of what happens here. The legislature is often in the ear of Salt Lake City and vice versa. Salt Lake City is, for example, where we're now uh, building a new uh, prison, where we're now building what we call the controversial, well, we don't call it the controversial, but I'll call it the controversial, Inland Port. Um, Salt Lake City is the hub of our, our transit system, UTA. I mean, there's just so much that happens here. And that's why this race, to me, is so important. And um, I don't know that there's a huge distinction between the two candidates. I think it's a win-win for the voters of Salt Lake City. And whoever ends up coming out ahead, I think it's going to serve the city very well. But after the after the break, we're going to interview each of these candidates and talk to them about kind of where they are in the last minute uh, lead up to the election, which is only three weeks away, um, what they think they can bring to the city, sort of their differences. And, and I've talked a little bit about their similarities, but there are certainly some differences as well. And and talk about how we're going to do that. You know, uh, people don't realize, maybe people do, but a a sitting mayor, whether it's Salt Lake or West Valley or Provo or whoever else, has the ability to appoint a, tr- a tremendous number of people within their city. For example, um, like we talked about earlier, Ralph Becker had the ability to hire and fire his chief, his chief of police. And a lot of cities, in fact, most of the larger cities in Utah, and even even a lot of the smaller ones, have their own police force. Um, I remember working at the district attorney office for a while and thinking, why don't we have a, a unified police force? Why don't we just have 
uh, uh, counties that each have their own police forces. And, and what we've learned is that a city police force or a city fire department or a city uh, water department or whatever else you want to call it has a real has a much better handle on what that city does and so these mayors have this ability to appoint dozens dozens of of individuals to serve in these pretty high ranking capacities and every time you have a new administration you have a shakeup we're going to i don't know chief brown is a pretty good salt lake city chief police chief of police right now. I, I like Chief Brown, but are his days numbered? It depends. It depends on which of these two candidates wins and what their position is on the Salt Lake City uh, Police Department. Um, there hasn't been a lot of controversy in that department, and I wouldn't expect there to be some, but there's invariably the officer involved shootings, the officer involved um, uh, disciplinary issues, and those kind of things that always rock the mayor's office. We haven't had, and we've been fortunate in Salt Lake City, uh, to have not had uh, a lot of scandal over the last couple of years. So I think that the new mayor is going to come into an office that, by and large, is well-respected and well-regarded, and hopefully they will uh, continue with what we've done in Salt Lake City. I've lived in Utah, not necessarily Salt Lake, my whole life, and I've seen a whole range of, of mayors that have come and gone we certainly know about Rocky Anderson. Um, we've had very good mayors. When Salt Lake was trying to get the the Olympics, um, we had a, a very active and very proactive uh, mayor's office who, in some respects, was more important in getting the Olympics to Salt Lake City than our, our state folks did. So it's an important race, and I hope that we – if you live in Salt Lake City, you get out and vote in a couple of weeks. I hope that you get involved in the in the politics of it. I hope that you read and learn about the differences uh, between the two. The Trib did an article yesterday, and, I, and I've seen one on KSL.com uh, as well, where they sort of break down the difference between these two women. They're not significant, but they're enough that I think the the voter can look at these and say, okay, based on what's important to me and based on what's important to my family, this is how I think I, sh- I should vote. So stay tuned. We're going to come back at the, after the break and interview some of these candidates and see where they are on the issues. Uh, again, if you want to text, Utah Community Credit Union text line 57500. We'd love to hear your text. We'll see you in a couple of minutes. Inside sources. Inside sources on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Good afternoon, welcome back. I'm Greg Scordish, your host on Inside Sources. It's 106, and we're talking about the Salt Lake City mayoral race. Um, you've probably seen uh, billboards around town, and you've probably seen lawn signs around town. And if you've been listening to KSL, you've probably heard some of the speakers. I told we have a number of debates coming up in the next three weeks between these two candidates. They both seem to me very viable candidates, very impressive candidates, and probably as much as I like Jackie Biskupski, an improvement um, in Salt Lake City. So to me, this is a win-win. We have on the line with this Luz Escamilla. Luz, I am reading a little bit of your bio. It says you're the vice president of community development at Zions Bank and a state senator, which I am very well aware of that. Thank you for serving there. 
and you've been a state senator for more than uh, 10 years. Um, came for, to Utah from Mexico as an international student more than 20 years ago and became a U.S. citizen in 2004. Um, in 2014, you ran for national office against Congress, yes. Chris Stewart. Chris and Stewart. so I know I know how that goes. That means you were traveling all over the, the state and, <laughs> and addressing people. Uh, tell me what your... Tell me, in, in term, just as a polit, former politician myself and having run, what, what is your focus right now in terms of getting the word out? Is it is it billboards? Is it debates? Is it lawn signs? Are you going door to door? Or is it sort of all of the above? <clears throat> Hi, Greg, and thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure connecting with you. Uh, yeah, this is, uh, we're in the last stretch of this race, and we are using all the tools in the toolbox. We have a very um, strategic and very aggressive field plan. So we were very happy that we've knocked on thousands and thousands of doors since the primary election was over. And we've had a lot of resources in terms of, you know, just volunteers, which, as you know, is the most valuable piece of our campaign. And we're also uh, being very strategic. We are using a lot of the numbers. Um, and there's a lot of just models that you can use now to check where you you micro target the communities that you know you can have a higher rate of persuasion. So we're ready to start our GLTV efforts as soon as the ballots arrive, which will be between tomorrow and Wednesday. And we're very excited to start doing that. It's, it's exciting times, and we're working 14, 16 hour days, and excited to do that. That's how it is during the last month, Luz. You work those 14, 16-hour days. And, t- and I'll tell you this, uh, and, and you've run before, so you know what it's like, but in the next two weeks, those 14, 16 hours are going to become 18, 20 hours. Yes, uh, so so um, were you, I'm going to ask you sort of a two-pronged question. Uh, were you surprised that Mayor Biskupski didn't jump into the race? And uh, in sort of follow-up to that, was that decision at all, uh, playing a part in your decision to run for mayor? Yes. So yes to both of your questions. I, As you know, uh, the mayor, Biskupski, announced he was seeking re-election. And as we, you know, we have people coming to us and saying, hey, have you considered running for mayor? And there were certain things that got us to that point, but absolutely, the, kind of like the deal breaker for me was knowing that we were not going to run against an incumbent. And, you know, she still had a lot of support, a lot of people respect her, you know, her, her work and, and her passion for the city. So when she decided not to run, was kind of like that critical moment when we went back and reviewed everything and had the conversation with the family and supporters, and we felt it was the right time to do this. Luz, my uh, law office is uh, not far from the downtown library and the, the Leonardo Center, and I walk to court often, and in doing so, I'll often walk by a lot of homeless people. They've seemed to have moved from the Rio Grande area to that area. Um, you seem to be taking the the homeless issue on head on, and you seem to have some some pretty good ideas on that. But is there something that we can do that you can do uh, once you're in office to? And, and I'm not saying they're a problem. I mean, I walk by them. I've never had any issues with them. But it's just it's just sort of a uncomfortable thing when you see the kids pulling up on the bus uh, to go into the library and just to see that homeless population which has now really overrun our our park air or our, our library area correct yeah i mean i think home understanding that there's many different communities experiencing homelessness and there's diversity within those i think it's the first important piece but you're absolutely right it's either number one or two when we're knocking on doors 
is the community now, there's an issue of public safety attached to this as well. And it's not only an issue whether, you know, you feel that we're a compassionate community, and we've always been that. And I think that's, uh, that's how one of our big core values of Solid City. But we need to be very smart on how we provide those services. We need to collaborate, Greg. There's no way we can do this alone. Our mental health and substance abuse, those are provided through the county. We need the Medicaid expansion from the state. And that's why uh, my ability to work in a collaborative effort with the state legislature, which I've done for 11 years, successfully passing a lot of legislation, but also working with the county, it's what's going to take us to the next level. We need accountability also in the way we are providing those services, those wraparound services. But the first thing we need is to provide housing. Many of these, especially families, Literally, they're just because of a financial situation away from homelessness. We need to prevent that. The more we do, and the city can do a lot in making sure people stay in permanent or supportive permanent housing. And I think I have the plan to do that, but it will require a collaboration with the state, with the county, and with the city and other municipalities. So briefly, Luz, and, and we're honored today to have Luz Escamilla with us. Uh, candidate for Salt Lake City Mayor, how can Salt Lake City and how can the mayor's office address the issue of affordable housing? Because Salt Lake has become a very expensive place to live, and we have a tremendous population here, a huge population, um, many of which we've been discussing are displaced. Uh, what can we do about that? What, what, I know it's, we have maybe two minutes, but what, what is your plan? Yes, we have an, a plan, and we invite people to visit our website at looseformayor.com, and that includes eight very specific points. So one is we have to be consistent on our funding and how intentional we are saying that we are about affordable housing. And affordable housing means a lot of things. It depends on your income, right? Affordability for someone making uh, $40,000 a year or $50,000 a year versus someone making 200000 is very different. So understanding that we want a solid city that's inclusive of all will require a mixed type of, uh, of, of housing units, from apartments to townhomes to homes, uh, single-room you know, single occupancy units as well. People that may need some wraparound services may have to be in the, some of these places that are just one room and they share, you know, uh, bathroom and kitchen with others and have case management surrounding them. We have to be understanding that we have to have them all and have them all across the city. We can't just have low-income housing in specific parts of the of our city and expect that that's just going to be there alone. So I think what you're going to see in our eight-point plan is very intentional. It's about funding. It's about also utilizing our current inventory that we have to develop in a smart, sustainable way. We also want to partner and have uh, good partnerships with our developers that are that want to help and they want to be part of the solution. And the way we incentivize them is by expediting processes. Right now, building in Salt Lake City is, it can be a saga. I mean, almost like a Game of Thrones saga. <laughs> and here you are waiting a, a year and a half for a permit. And for, you know, we need to expedite those for the, for the developers that are willing to put a uh, different type of affordable income housing, um, and, you know, income housing in all the city. And also they're net zero. I mean, talking about the environment, right? And they're going to be also being part of our solution towards a more net zero approach and their sustainability, which is the number one thing that I've been talking about in my campaign is sustainability. Thinking Salt Lake City 25 years from now, that's how we do it. So I invite you, invite all your listeners to come and visit our website so you can see specifically in our eight, eight steps towards more affordable housing in, the, in Salt Lake City. And, Luz, tell us how we can find that website one more time. 
Again, yeah, it's LuzFormayor.com, so L-U-Z-F-O-R, Mayor.com. Luz, I want to thank you for running. I mean, I know what it's like, and I know that you've done it a few times. It's it's a public service just to jump into a race. Uh, you've done extremely well so far. Your contributions, your contributors, uh, your endorsements, uh, you've just ran just a, a really great race. And I wish you all the best of luck in the future. We're three weeks away from the mayoral race. And um, that was really a very nice time to spend some time with Luz Escamilla, Thank candidate you, for Thank Salt Lake for Mayor. Time. We'll be back with the other candidate for Salt Lake Mayor, an equally impressive candidate, Erin Mendenhall. We're going to interview her, talk to her about some of the issues that are near and dear to her, her as well. So stay tuned. We'll be back in about three or four minutes. Inside Sources. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. Welcome back to Inside Sources. I'm your guest host, Greg Scordis. It's 120. Uh, we invite you to weigh in uh, if you want to text us. The Utah Community Credit Union text line is 57500. At the last segment, we interviewed Luz Escamilla, candidate for Salt Lake City Mayor, and we are fortunate now to have her opponent, Aaron Mendenhall. Aaron is a resident of Salt Lake, works on the Salt Lake City Council, has for the past six years, was the council chair recently. She has a background in the nonprofit sector and got her, her entry into politics through air quality work. She previously was with the clean air advocacy group Breathe Utah, which she helped found and currently serves as the chairwoman of the state air quality board. So Aaron, I want to start with that, even though that's sort of the end of the bio for you. What is it that Salt Lake City can do and what is it the Salt Lake Mayor's Office can do to help us with our, our state air quality issues? Thanks for having me on the show, Greg. There's actually quite a bit that we can do, and part of that is because of the political momentum, the will of our residents, and the desire to be engaged in doing something more. Another part of it is uh, the nature of rolling uh, conversations with our power provider, with Rocky Mountain Power, and technical improvements that are happening. So at the highest level, next year, our next mayor will be negotiating with Rocky Mountain Power about how soon renewable energy comes into Salt Lake City. Right now we're set for 100% net renewable energy by about 2030. We know we need it here sooner for a number of reasons, climate change and carbon emissions being one of those. But uh, as a city, we're ready for it. So that is at the high level something that I'll be negotiating. We zoom down into the city. We know that we need to reduce vehicle emissions and make it easier for people to get in and out and around our city. So growing our public transportation system will be one of the first endeavors I take on. And it cannot be done with just our taxpayer dollars as it has been so far. We've got to bring the economy that needs a functional transportation system to the table and help us get that bus service built out faster. We need that bus fleet to be transitioned to an all-electric fleet so that the emissions coming out aren't what they are today. We need to build out our electric vehicle charging infrastructure so that if you're driving in an electric vehicle, it's easier to get downtown and know that you'll be able to charge it up to be able to get home. And then even zooming into our driveways and backyards and front yards, we need to be able to have Salt Lake City residents change out their gasoline snowblowers and lawnmowers for electric units the way that the state has done with the CARAT program. We can replicate that here in Salt Lake City and make sure that at the lowest level of emissions production, we are helping residents to eliminate those sources. There will be more opportunities as uh, technology improves and as we build a smart city and bring more partnerships to the table. And I'll be ready as the next mayor, hopefully, to act and make take advantage of all those new opportunities we can't project yet. 
it sounds like you're very, very ready, Aaron, and you've got a lot of a lot of great ideas. So let me ask you about this, the harder part. Um, how do we implement those? And as a Salt Lake City mayor, in terms of working with a state legislature, which hasn't necessarily been all that friendly to the environment and in friend, and friendly to uh, renewable energy, um, how do how do you get that message across to our our state legislators? Yeah, Greg, I think this is a it's actually a good opportunity to highlight some of the differences between my opponent and me. Um, you might notice that in everything I just listed, at no point did I say we need the state to help us do that. The state That's why I asked that. <laughs> That's not our answer. Right. And uh, although the state is important in a lot of different partnerships, these are all things that the Salt Lake City mayor and Salt Lake City can do for itself. Of course, some of that's a conversation with Rocky Mountain Power. That's a contractual negotiation, and there's no place for the state or another government entity in those kind of negotiations. Will there be other opportunities where the state can either help us leverage things farther or uh, help us build it out and take the message into other cities? Sure, there are. But I know how to run city government. That's what I've been doing for six years. I know what our tools are. And I'm really running to walk from the north end of the third floor down to the south end of the third floor and move from the council office to the mayor's office. This toolbox, I know, and it's the work that I've been doing. The state is not the answer to all of our solutions. We're speaking with Aaron Mendenhall, who is a member of Salt Lake City Council and has been for six years and decided to jump into the mayor's race. Let me ask you this, Aaron. Why jump in? Why did you decide to run for Salt Lake City mayor? I'm sure you've been asked that question 370 times, but I'll ask it one more. <laughs> per week. Right. Um, well, I love Salt Lake City, and I think that's you know part of why I have been a community organizer and working on the number one issue for Salt Lake City residents for the last decade with air quality work. Uh, it's also why I ran for office, because I know that at the city government level, we can do a lot to impact the quality of life and the opportunities for our city. As I listened to the other candidates who were getting into the race earlier this spring, I didn't see a candidate who I felt like could take us where we needed to go. I hear candidates, uh, there were eight of us at the time, of course, who would talk about the problems but not show me a path of how we're going to solve them. Um, I think I have something unique to bring to the conversation in that regard, and I, I hope that's part of the reason why I came out more than a 1,000 votes over second place in the primary, and I'm hoping to do it again on November 5th. You did have a very impressive showing in the primary, uh, Aaron, and I'm wondering, and I'm going to ask you maybe a sort of off-the-wall question. We're we're three weeks from the election. Um, mm-hmm. I read an article by Bob Gerke in the Trib recently about billboards, um, sort of pro and con. Um, I know, having run myself, the importance of lawn signs and getting the word out and what's been your focus how do you how are you getting your name and your word out besides just and i know you've done a tremendous amount of this going door to door to door yeah yeah it, i think the the grassroots campaign approach that my campaign has taken with intention from the beginning is part of the the ingredients of success that we've experienced so far really working i work I work all day long into the night to connect with as many voters as I can on a day-to-day basis. I've got a lot of support from uh, Salt Lake City's working families, friends volunteering, people coming out to knock doors with me and tell people why they're out there spending their free time helping to try to get me elected to do more for Salt Lake City. 
Uh, you don't see my face on billboards. I have a lot of reasons for that. The number one reason being that our Grand Boulevards, 5th South and 6th South, have been stale. They're literally in a stalemate between the city and outdoor advertising industry for decades. We have an incredible opportunity with qualified opportunity zones overlaying that area for us to get more out of our Grand Boulevards. And it is absolutely incumbent on our next mayor to either make that happen or leave those as stale as they've been. I want to negotiate with that industry. And I don't think it's appropriate for a candidate to be taking tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in support for her campaign and then say, I'm going to actually have a fair and robust negotiation with this industry next year. I'm not taking a penny of that, and part a big piece of that is because I need to negotiate with that industry as soon as I'm the mayor. Wow. Well, Aaron, um, I'm told that you have something like 14 debates still scheduled. Is that true, or have you already had 14 <laughs> debates? We've, we've had six. Tonight is our seventh. We will have 14 total for the general election. We had a, a good number during the primary. I think it's I think it's accurate to say there's never been such a robust community discussion about uh, the mayoral race in Salt Lake City in our city's history. So I'm proud of our community for organizing in this way. It is There's a lot of opportunities to hear us um, in contrast to one another, back to that question about the distinctions between us. I think debates are a really excellent way for people to hear us answer the same question back to back and draw their own conclusions. Well, Aaron, I wish to Wish you the best of luck. I know how difficult it is to run, and you've run such a great campaign. You guys have taken the high road. Um, your word is good. Uh, your your message is good. I, I see uh, everything I've read and heard about you is just so impressive, and I think um, you and Luz are both going to be uh, great candidates, and whichever one of you wins is going to be a, a huge uh, improvement on our Salt Lake Mayor's office. So best of luck, Aaron, and we'll be watching Thank you very you, closely. Thank that you. was Aaron Mendenhall, candidate for Salt Lake City Mayor. We've interviewed both candidates now, and I think that um, you get a little bit of a handle on the difference between the two of them. When we come back, talking about an officer-involved shooting, another one, another one in Texas, and some of the similarities and differences that we're seeing in those. We'll be right back. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Inside Sources. I'm your host, Greg Scordis, filling in today. Uh, we're getting some interesting texts at our text line 57500. Ask you to chime in if you'd like. We uh, had a good conversation with both of the candidates for Salt Lake City mayor. Um, it appears that we are in for a very good mayor for the next four years in Salt Lake City, no matter who your choice is. If you're a resident of Salt Lake City, get out and vote. Learn the issues regarding both candidates. Make your decision. Uh, there are some differences between the two. And um, let's let's get out and get the vote out. Um, moving topics a little bit, you might recall that about two weeks ago, a female Dallas police officer, former police officer, because she'd been terminated, named Amber Geiger, who shot and killed a man named Botham Jean in his apartment a year earlier in 2018, was convicted of murder. Now, when the prosecutor's office filed the charges against this officer, they charged her with manslaughter. But they took the case to a grand jury. We don't do that here in Utah very often, except in our federal courts. 
Um, our state court's almost always done through what we call an information filed by the district attorney's office, and then you get a preliminary hearing instead of a grand jury. But in this case, the DA's office there in, in Dallas charged her originally with manslaughter, but a grand jury later indicted her for murder. She went to trial, uh, the jury heard the evidence, and they convicted her of that murder, and she was given a 10-year prison sentence. Now, a lot of people felt that was not enough. I suppose that there were other people who felt that it was just about right. Um, she had certainly served an honorable career in law enforcement, uh, but the shooting was was really a, a, a problem. And, and if you recall the case, she lived in, a, lived in an apartment complex, and she lived on one floor, and this victim, the man that she shot, lived in the same unit on a different floor. So she was either one below him or one above him and walked into the unit having served um, with the police department that day and having been, I guess, sort of exhausted, walked into what she thought was her apartment. Instead, she sees this this man sitting there and he wasn't doing anything at all wrong, but she assumed he was there burglarizing her apartment and so she shot and killed him. Um, like I said, originally indicted on a manslaughter, which is typically what we sort of see as a non-intentional homicide, but the jury or the grand jury indicted her for murder, which is by definition an intentional homicide, and she was found guilty. Two weeks ago that occurred. Now, flash fast forward to this weekend, and a Fort Worth, Texas officer was called to check on a residence with a door that was ajar, went inside, and if you've seen the body cam footage of this, and it's been published a little bit, you know that he was in a dark house, and he was moving around, and he was giving orders, not the least of which was, quote, put your hands up, show me your hands, before shooting this woman a few seconds later. Again, the woman in this case, the victim in this case, was a African-American who was a 28-year-old grad student in the Dallas-Fort Worth area who happened to be at that residence babysitting her 8-year-old nephew. Talk about a tragedy. And just a beautiful kid, if you've seen the footage of this. Uh, her family's obviously very upset. And the police there in the Dallas-Fort uh, Worth area are doing their investigation as well. Importantly, it has occurred to a lot of people, including uh, this officer's own chief, that he never identified himself as an officer. That's an important thing that will be taken into account when the investigation now ensues in terms of what we're going to do with this officer. Um, like the, like the, uh, the other officer that we talked about a minute ago, um, from the Dallas area, he she was originally indicted on, or originally charged rather with manslaughter, but later indicted for murder. Uh, a prosecutor and at some point a grand jury is going to hear this case involving this officer and try and decide what, if anything, he should be charged with. And I'm assuming, based on what we're hearing so far from the from the media, that uh, he's going to be charged with something. A breaking news just within the last few minutes, the officer involved in this shooting has resigned his position with the Fort Worth Police Department. Now, why would an officer resign? And let me just say this from my own perspective, and I and I have a bias on in this area that I need to disclose. That is, for the last um, 20 years, I've worked in 
uh, representing police officers at various agencies throughout the state in officer-involved shooting. And when an officer-involved shooting occurs, uh, there's both an administrative, internal affairs, and a criminal investigation that goes on. So by resigning, this is just my opinion as to why the officer would have resigned, um, he's saying, I don't need to have the internal affairs investigation go on. I think I know how it's going to end up. I'm probably going to get fired and spares himself having to be interviewed in that um, investigation. So it doesn't mean that there won't be a criminal investigation and it doesn't mean that there necessarily won't be an internal affairs investigation, but the internal affairs investigation will not result in his termination because he was fired. And another thing that I've been... um, privy to in in my representation of police officers is sometimes, and and I'm just surmising, but sometimes when an officer resigns as opposed to getting fired, they're allowed to take more of their uh, benefits. For example, if an officer has accrued, let's say, 500 hours of unused sick leave and they resign, typically they'll get a large percentage of that. But if they're fired, they won't get any. So that could be a significant amount of, of, uh, finances for the officer. So sometimes when we advise these officers in these administrative actions, not necessarily just related to officer-involved shooting, but when we advise officers in internal affairs and other matters, sometimes you say, look, you, you, you're, you're going to get fired anyway. You might as well take the resignation. You're close to your retirement age. You're going to get your benefits. You're going to get your package, that type of thing. You may want to consider that. I don't know that that's the case here, but that's something to to keep in mind, um, and the news found it important, and I think I do too, that in both these cases that we're talking about, these Texas officers, both officers are white and both victims were African-American. Did that play a role in this? It certainly did in the other case where the woman was charged and convicted of murder. Uh, like I say, the Fort Worth, Texas uh, grand jury and prosecuting attorneys are going to take a hard look at this case as well and decide what to do. I want to talk a little bit more more about officer-involved shootings after the break, how they're handled, uh, sort of the, the take on what happens when an officer is involved in a shooting, maybe bring a little bit of a Utah focus into this, and we'll be right back. Inside Sources. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. Welcome back to Inside Sources. I'm your host, Greg Scordis, filling in today, and uh, we're heading into the home stretch here. We've been talking a little bit about the uh, officer-involved shootings, the two that happened in Texas within the last year, the one that happened just within the last week. And for those of you that may be joining us late or just haven't been um, following the news very closely, a Fort Worth, Texas police officer called to check on a residence with a door that was ajar, opened fire on a woman, killing her inside. Uh, importantly, the body cam video shows him going through the house, through the dark house with a gun, put your hands up, show me your hands, before shooting her a few seconds later. At no point does he identify himself as a police officer. His chief of police seems very concerned about that and wants to know why that didn't occur. Uh, As we've heard just from the last segment and even during the news break, that officer has resigned uh, his employment there at the Fort Fort Worth Police Department. What happens there, we don't know. If I were to guess, I would say he's going to be charged with some sort, some level of homicide, whether it's an intentional shooting like a murder or more of a negligent or reckless shooting like a manslaughter remains to be seen. There could be a grand jury called and um, we'll, we'll have to watch that pretty closely. But that followed pretty closely 
in time with a Dallas police officer, a female, Amber Geiger, who shot and killed a man in his apartment a year ago and was sentenced just two weeks ago uh, to a 10-year sentence for murder. Now, uh, 10 years for murder might seem like a very minimal, modest amount. And in Utah, we don't have 10-year sentences. We have murder carries of what we call a 20 to life or 25 to life, depending on what happened. And then the Board of Pardons would decide. But there would there would be no circumstance in Utah where a person would get, in my opinion, a 10-year sentence for a, a murder conviction. Now, manslaughter would be a little different because it carries a, a 1 to 15-year term. Um, people were upset in Texas about that, uh, upset about the fact that she got off what they considered pretty easily. But you could assume, and I think it's safe to assume, that being a police officer... She had no prior criminal history. She otherwise served her community very well. And um, it wasn't a knowing, intentional homicide in the same way that perhaps a a shooter that, uh, you know, comes into a school or something like that or a shopping mall or something does. So that explains, I think, why a judge would give her a little bit lesser sentence. In Utah, just within the last couple of weeks, we had a another shooting. And this one happened on September 10th in, of all places, Wellington City. Um, I mean, down in Carbon County, it's a suburb, if you will, of Price. Um, Probably a very small community, probably a very small police department. And this is another case where you have to watch the body cam and make your own conclusion as to what happened here and whether or not the, the Carbon County attorney, uh, Jeremy Humes, who recently released a letter saying that he was not filed criminal charges against the officer, um, made that right decision. Um, anytime you have an officer involved shooting, the question has to come about, and that is this. At the moment that that officer pulled the trigger, did he or she believe that they were acting in self-defense or defense of others. And, and it's not just as simple as self-defense, but, the, but that is that they have to have acted in self-defense against another's use of unlawful force or violence. And that means significant unlawful force or violence. So, for example, an officer wouldn't be allowed to use deadly force, a firearm, for somebody that was attacking him with a newspaper, for example. And I'm being a little bit trying to Think of an example, but but force against force, deadly force against deadly force. And in that case, down in Wellington, the county attorney's office has cleared that officer of that shooting. Um, watch the video and make your own conclusion. Now, I have to confess here that I represent police officers. I was involved in that case. I think the decision was, was sound, and I think it was correct. Um, but it's certainly opened for public discussion. Um, and And the difference between... Uh, Wellington City, a small suburb of Price in Carbon County, and the two officer-involved shootings that we talked about at the last break, one from Fort Worth and one from Dallas, the two probably largest cities um, outside of San- or, uh, Houston in the state of Texas. Um, and and you're, you're talking about two tremendously large departments and one, I'm assuming Wellington City is a pretty small department. Uh, People don't realize that when an officer is involved in a shooting, they'll be placed on administrative leave and they'll almost always be placed on paid administrative leave. So 
if you're in Dallas and you've got one of your officers on paid leave for a month while the case is being investigated, life sort of goes on. Uh, if you're in Fort Worth and an officer's placed on administrative leave, or if you've heard uh, the recent news, uh, just simply resigns, um, well, business goes on. But in Wellington City, if an officer's on paid administrative leave, that could that could really hurt a city's bottom line because they probably don't have a lot of other officers. Um, I also want to make a comment about the use of these body cams because we've seen a couple here. We saw the one in Fort Worth, which has been published and shown repeatedly. And we saw the one in Wellington City, which has been published. Uh, and, and I think it wouldn't be hard to go online and look at that. But it does give you a sense that we never had before. And I've been practicing law for 37 years before we had uh, body cams. In fact, uh, when I started, we didn't even have dash cams. You, you, you just didn't have the video that we now have available to everyone um, to sort of see what happens. Um, I know police were nervous at at first with the dash cams and saying, well, you know, we don't want people to watch every move we make. I mean, I don't have a dash cam in my car. I don't have a body cam when I go around and meet with clients or people or just interact with others. My, my, my life is not under that level of scrutiny, but police officers are, and probably they should be in this day and age. Um, and because what we learn, what we've seen from these dash cam videos and these body cam videos is that by and large, police officers try to do things right. They try to do things uh, the way that they're trained and the way that they're taught. And sometimes they make mistakes. And there's there's nothing like they say, a picture paints a thousand words. You can interview a police officer or all the people that surrounded him or her during the course of an officer involved shooting or an officer involved uh, use of force and say, well, here's what I saw and here's what I believe uh, was occurring. But the body cam really tells the picture. And so when we when we ask an officer, why did you pull the trigger? And the officer says, um, I I felt that I was in danger for my self or for danger for another, then you then you say, okay, look, let's look at the video and see if that corroborates that impression, if that corroborates that uh, subjective impression and whether objectively we would look at that and say, you know what, um, under the circumstances and everything that we've, we've seen, uh, that officer was justified in using force. Now, a jury in Dallas saw uh, evidence and, and probably a body cam of that shooting of that the, the female officer there that shot that man and the jury decided that she was guilty of murder. A jury in Fort Worth may very well have the same questions posed before them uh, when they decide what to do with this shooting that happened this last weekend. A another level of problem that occurs with these cases and it, and it doesn't help the community and it doesn't help the police officer, but you absolutely have to take it into account and that is the interracial Part between the victim and the police officer. The two Texas shootings both involved white officers and African-American victims. Did that play a part in this? I mean, we certainly hope it doesn't. But but the 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 video and and sort of the the criteria that we look at, the forensics, all the evidence we have, you might say, well, would the, would the officer have made the same decision? Would he have pulled the trigger, he or she? have pulled the trigger at the same time and under the same circumstance had the person in front of them been white. We hope that's not a consideration, but you can't avoid it in this day and age. Um, the police, police officer down in Wellington was was not involved in an interracial shooting, and so that 
decision didn't come to play. But if you watch that video, you saw the officer engaging that person, talking to him, trying to talk him down. It was clearly, it appears, a suicidal person. And the officer is saying, hey, you don't need to do this. Let's talk it over. Let's see what we can work out. And the individual continues to advance. The officer, in, in fact, in that case in Wellington, backs up. And he's on this these railroad tracks and on these sort of loose rocks, and he sort of stumbles at one point. You can almost feel the fear in that officer as the individual approaches, climbs over a fence, brandishes a knife, and some of the reports say that there were actually two knives involved, and continues uh, progressing toward the officer. The officer drew his weapon, fired it, it looks like, several times, and the Carbon County Attorney's Office has recently released a letter saying that they would not be filing criminal charges against that officer. He's probably back to work. They may have some sort of internal affairs investigation, and who knows if the victim's family is going to engage a lawyer for a civil suit. But all of those considerations have different standards. They all have different burdens of proof. They all have different questions you have to ask to decide whether or not the officer is culpable. Um, we, we, we can't help but see these officer-involved shootings all the time. Um, and a lot of times, as we all know, uh, it's the result of a person who is suicidal. We call it suicide by cop. And they just there's something going on in their lives that they just can't handle. And suddenly they're approaching the police. Um, I think we've hit that subject pretty hard. Uh, we're going to take a break for a few minutes, come back and talk about just a wild video that's out. And if you get a chance to look at it after the segment, please do. But we're going to talk about this Trump video, this violent parody from the, the movie Kingsman, if you've ever seen that. So stay tuned. We'll be back in about three or four minutes. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Good afternoon. Welcome back. It's 206. I'm Greg Scordis filling in for Inside Sources. Um, please send us your text to the Utah Community Credit Union text line. Text your comments to 57500. We had a discussion for the last couple of segments about officer-involved shootings, and I told you I was going to leave that alone. But I do want to go to one of the texts that we've received. Um, and generally, the texts with respect to these officer-involved shootings have been favorable to law enforcement. This one begins, police officers generally should never be charged. Um, we as the general public um, are, are not in their situation. That's exactly true. I mean, in any time you look at an officer-involved shooting, you say, look, um, that person went to work knowing they may have to use force. I don't ever go into work knowing I'm going to use force. In fact, I've never used force, um, especially deadly force. It's not something that's on my radar. I don't carry a weapon. In fact, you can't even walk into a court building with a weapon. But these officers, men and women, do it every single day. And every single day when they walk out the door and they kiss their husband or wife goodbye for the day, they are putting their lives in jeopardy. I want to keep that on the forefront of people's minds when they consider um, how officers are generally treated and how their their life situations are so much more difficult than the rest of us. And another thing I would say, and then I'm going to leave this alone, even though I keep telling you I'm going to leave it alone. Um, these these body cams have been a great um, a great uh, indication of what happens in an officer's mind. But when an officer pulls a trigger or uses any other form of deadly force. That decision is made in seconds, and sometimes in split seconds. 
and the county attorneys and the grand juries and the juries that actually hear the cases at trials have weeks and months and sometimes many months to formulate an opinion as to whether or not that split-second decision was justified. So, um, again, let's be open-minded about these. Let's try to be objective when we consider these, but we also need to keep in mind how difficult it is for police officers to do their jobs every day. Shifting gears, I want to talk about a video that has come out. And, you know, the problem with radio is you just can't see it. But if you get a chance after the show today, look this up. If any of you remember a movie, and it wasn't even a good movie, called The Kingsman or Kingsman, The Secret Service. And I saw this movie. I don't remember why, but I was, was, I was home at the time when I was watching it, so I didn't go to the movie cinema. But there's a scene in the movie um, where, uh, and, and I think that the actor uh, has had his mind altered or something like that, and he walks into a church, and he's a very skilled a fighter, he's a very trained fighter, and he walks into a church and just starts stabbing and killing people. And it's just a horrific scene. And um, the only thing I like about the scene is that, when, and I remember this, and I had to listen to it again today, but they play that Leonard Skinner song, uh, Freebird, <laughs> during it. And there's this there's a guitar solo during Freebird that you just have to, it's crazy, and it fits the the top the the scene really really well so it's kind of a fun scene but it's taken a weird turn and the video was shown last week at the American Priority Conference at Donald Trump's Doral Miami Resort the president wasn't there somebody had taken this scene and they had superimposed the president's face on the killer's face so it made it appear that the president had entered this church, and they call it the Church of uh, the uh, Fake News, the Fake News Church. It's clearly designed uh, to uh, take a shot, a cheap shot, I'll say, at the media. And this, this Trump persona, it's clearly his face, walks into the church, and he's armed and loaded and ready to go, and he... And then they, they just play the video of Trump going through the audience there at the church and just stabbing people, killing people. But then another really creepy thing occurred, and that is that the, the people who put this tape together superimposed the faces of Trump's opponents, um, his, his political problem troublemakers. And so there's, for example, one scene where the fake Donald Trump strikes Senator John McCain in the neck with a knife. He hits and stabs Rosie O'Donnell in the face, lights Senator Bernie Sanders' head on fire, and targets people whose faces are replaced with news organization logos. So there's a CNN, there's, a, there's other uh, NBC news outlet personas who are being killed. Uh, other targets include former President Barack Obama, uh, the organization Black Lives Matter, uh, California Democratic Representative Maxine Waters. Both Bill and Hillary Clinton are killed in the video. Uh, Adam Schiff, Democratic uh, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, who is leading the impeachment inquiry of Mr. Trump, is also one of the proposed or uh, purported victims of this. It's really shocking. Um, and it was shown at a Trump rally for Trump supporters at his Miami resort. What we've learned about this video, this is sort of interesting, 
is that it was produced about a year ago. Um, looks like it was posted originally on July 3rd of 2018. Um, but it now has become viral in in regard to this showing that they had just very recently. I was watching the news here in front of me just a few minutes ago, and I saw uh, the president's response to this. And of course, he just he just can't help himself. But you you would expect a a person to say, "I don't approve of this. This is horrible. Uh, I I deplore that what it, what's shown." What he says is. I would never kill a media person, but that doesn't mean I don't hate them. <laughs> so like, I don't even know what the message is there, why why he comments at all, but he does, and that's what we have. Now, it's, it's 2019, and what's happening in this country and what has happened in this country over the last several years, and it's not particular to any administration because it's happened when Democrats are in office and Republicans are in office – but these mass shootings and these mass stabbings and these mass killings, if you will, and it's become an epidemic in our country. So for someone in a way of glorifying the president um, puts together a video that shows this type of conduct occurring is just deplorable. And the fact that they show it at a at a at Trump's own Miami resort at a meeting of his um, people. It's called the American Priority Conference at Donald Trump's Doral Miami Resort is even more shocking. I I should say that the president wasn't there. It was unauthorized. Um, It wasn't approved or sanctioned uh, by the people at the conference. Um, They weren't contacted before it was shown. Um, Certainly, well, not certainly, but probably the president wasn't consulted before this was shown. Um, And uh, he's sort of taking the position that you know, if you can't take a joke, uh, why are you involved in politics? Um, but a lot of people are looking at this saying, you know, you can't you can't just glorify this kind of thing or make a joke out of it. Um, uh, Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke tweeted that the video, quote, isn't funny. It will get people killed. Um, CNN called the images vile and horrific. And CNN is one of the age, one of the groups that was killed by uh, the president in this video purportedly um, the uh, the organizers of the event say well geez it wasn't really associated or endorsed by the conference in any in any official capacity uh, but uh, and we we reject political violence but we're sort of just looking into the matter I mean I think a lot of people are saying well this was just meant to be fun and was taken a little bit over the top but it's not. Um, the massacre occurs at the Church of Fake News. A number of the people who are killed are um, news persons, are political opponents of the president. And there's this sort of creepy smile that they put on the president's face after a lot of the killings that make it appear that he's actually enjoying the the, the, the whole procedure. But it's a good way to listen to one of my favorite songs, Leonard Skinnerd and uh, Freebird, especially that great guitar solo. Um, we've already had texts on this one. Um, one of them says that video is disgusting. It's his bass. I assume that he means the, the texter, he or she means it's the president's bass. They truly are deplorable. And I would only say this video is deplorable. Although we're drawing attention to it, which is probably the worst thing we should do, and people are going to look at it. Maybe you'll find it funny. I find it be particularly troublesome. Um, we uh, heard some 
discussion this morning about the Utah uh, CEO that was found dead. There's been a lot of discussion as to whose fault it is, why that occurred, why more wasn't done. We're going to talk about that after the next break. We'll be back in about three or four minutes. It's 2.16. Inside Sources. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Inside Sources. I'm your host, Greg Scordis. We're talking now about a Utah CEO, and we've been talking about this on and off, and if you've been listening to the news segments between my segments, uh, you know it's been it's been talked about quite a bit. But let me just reset this for those of you that have been following it or maybe haven't been following it as close as you can. Uh, a woman, a 33-year-old, very, very successful a CEO from Utah, Erin Valenti, beautiful woman, was down in Palo Alto, California area, and she was ironically there to receive an award. Um, she's the founder and CEO of Tinker, T-I-N-K-E-R Ventures, and was due uh, to return for the Women Tech Awards Wednesday, where she was to receive an award for entrepreneurial excellence. Um, that would have been here in Utah. However, she went missing on Monday. Her family reported her missing, and the police called this a, quote, voluntary missing person. I think that was an unfortunate way to list this because the family felt, is apparently feeling, and if you, it's not hard to read between the lines, that they're trying to say, look, you know, this, this missing person wasn't taken very seriously. So she goes missing on Monday, according to her husband. And she is found Saturday dead in the back seat of a car. Um, let me just read you a, a quick quote here by her husband who says this. I can't believe that I'm writing this. But my wife and best friend and my entire life, Erin Valenti, was found dead in San Jose. There are a lot of details that we don't know yet, including the cause of death. Her family is devastated. I feel like I don't have a life to go back to because she was my life. Thank you all for the overwhelming response. The outpouring of support from friends, family, and total strangers will always be with me. It made me see some good in the world when it is hard to find. I love you all. Please take care of each other and cherish every moment that you have with loved ones. Um, you know, um, she, she went missing for five days. And as we're now going back, and this is what we do best, we go back and second guess. We go back and... Um, try to decide who made the mistake here because uh, something somebody must have done something wrong for this woman to have died. It was interesting when I was watching one of the news stations last night, immediately after the showing of this story, immediately after posting the story, they ran a an ad for a, a Utah suicide hotline, which made me think that whoever put that program together last night felt that her death was a suicide. We don't know that, and it's way too early to surmise that. But when she was found apparently alone in the backseat of a car that she had rented, the family has a lot of questions, as well they should, because they reported her missing five days before she was found. They, they gave the information of the car she was driving, and I think it was a rental car. And I assume in this day and age in 2019 that rental cars all have some sort of GPS tracker or something on them. So it wouldn't have been hard, theoretically, for police officers in the San Jose area to sort of 
trace down that car, but the, the rental car was never returned. Um, she'd turn off her phone as of last Monday. No one had heard from her. They even had the details of the car, this gray Nissan Murano with California plates, and they list the plate number. Anyone that knows what's going on, please call the San Jose Police Department. Um, they posted pictures of her all over the place, and then they just find her dead in the car, um, a pr- purportedly, and we're gathering information sort of slowly here, and no one knows the cause of death. Now, the California medical examiner will no doubt do an autopsy, and they will determine what the cause of death was, um, whether it was some sort of a trauma from another individual, whether it was um, suicide, we don't know, and it's way, way too early to speculate. But I also think in defense of the San Jose Police Department, and I don't know anybody there or have any reason to defend them, that this was at first a missing person. And um, she's doesn't have a history of mental illness. She doesn't have a history of suicide. Um, she seems to be a really pretty, smart, happy-go-lucky person, and she's missing. And so the police there in, in San Jose, California, don't just drop everything and run around and try to find her. The family and her friends are wondering why they didn't drop everything and run around and find her, just as the family of uh, Lauren McCluskey up at the University of Utah have filed a lawsuit against the university and saying, well, you know, you, you knew there was a problem, you didn't do anything, um, there should be some responsibility here. Uh, will the same be true of the San Jose Police Department? Uh, we'll have to see. Uh, do we know what happened to her between Monday and Saturday? Uh, we'll have to see. Um, is it possible that she uh, was dead in her vehicle for five days and people simply just walked by and didn't say or do anything about it? Um, that's certainly a problem as well. Or did she just have some sort of a mental health breakdown and uh, couldn't couldn't uh, really address some of the problems that she was having and, and take her own life? I mean, the the questions are far more than the answers right now. We're very early in the investigation. It seems to be a huge uh, news item all over the place. She had great ties to Utah. She was about to be honored here at the Women Tech Awards. Um, She was about to receive the Entrepreneurial Excellence Award, according to the Women Tech Council's uh, co-founder. and um, so what do we do about this? I mean, what a, what a devastating loss for our community. What a loss for her friends and family. And we'll have to see how that investigation goes. Um, we've, we've talked a little bit today about police and their conduct and what we do. And like I say, we second-guess police probably more than any other, uh, any other entity, any other sort of career right now in our country. We really do look at their conduct. Anytime there's an officer involved shooting, well, what was going on? What was the race of the victim? What was the race of the police officer? Anytime there's a missing person, well, why wasn't this person found? Why weren't we more aggressive in trying to find them? And and more importantly, or maybe more regularly, uh, we deal with these um, domestic violence situations where police officers are called to respond to a situation like that and do we take it seriously? Yes. Do we go in and arrest every single time? No. Do we often leave the perpetrator and the victim alone after the investigation? Yes, in part because sometimes the victim says we're all fine and there's nothing going on here and uh, we're going to be fine. And then, of course, later sometimes we find devastating results of that. So, uh, wow, just a very beautiful woman, a very successful woman found dead uh, there's probably going to be a lot of information coming out about that in the next uh, weeks to come. Um, 
Speaking of California, they passed a law just recently that I want to talk about after the next break. Of course, I'm a lawyer, so I love to talk about laws and where we are and what we've done. And uh, California has passed a law regarding the statute of limitations for um, child sex victims. And in other words, is there a time period that you have to file your a lawsuit against the person that abused you. Um, Utah has a law. Other states have laws. We're going to talk about those. Um, it's something that California just did very recently. And we'll, and when we come back after the break, we'll talk about that as well. Um, this um, this uh, CEO found dead, though, is certainly a problem. And, uh, boy, I guess we're going to learn a lot about that. Um, it's now 2.28, and uh, we'll be back for one of our last segments in just a few minutes. My name is Greg Scordis, and you're listening to my program today. Um, inside sources, um, I'm filling in today. I've had a, some people say, well, who are you filling in for? And um, there's there's sort of between candidates right now. I'm, I'm just filling in. I'm not auditioning for the job. I have a regular job. I thoroughly enjoy doing this. It's fun. My wife wonders why I leave her on a holiday weekend when we could be hanging out. Uh, but I, I've, I, I, I really like doing this, and, and I, I assume that this show will have a, a regular host here in the days or weeks to come. But it's been really fun listening to Doug Wright, listening to other people come in and fill in on this show. Uh, we'll be back right after this break. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Welcome back. I'm Greg Scordish, your host for Inside Sources today. I've enjoyed the show today. Um, I'm a lawyer, as some of you know, so I enjoy legal uh, questions, and there's been an interesting legal turn in the state of California. Let me preface this by a couple of things. Um, years ago, I worked at the district attorney's office here in Salt Lake County, and I was the head of what they called the Special Victims Unit, which was the unit that handled crimes against children and sex crimes, um, also domestic violence crimes. It was the Special Victims Unit before the show Special Victims Unit came about. And at that time, that was in the early 90s, we often wrestled with this issue called the statute of limitations. And let me just tell you how that works. Um, in our laws, a victim, and we're talking both criminal and civil, and I'll try to break it down a little bit. If a person was hurt by another and they want to sue them, they have a statute of limitations. That is a period of time they need to file that lawsuit. If a person is the victim of a crime, the government typically has a statute of limitations. That is a certain amount of time that they need to file the action. At the time I was at the prosecuting attorney's office, we generally assumed that felonies had a four-year statute of limitations and misdemeanors had a two-year statute of limitations. And, and really, there wasn't much distinction other than that. Um, we realized that cases against children were often not reported within the statutory period. They weren't reported, if, for example, if a child was hurt when they were 8 or 10 and they didn't report it until they're 18 or 20. Um, they would have exceeded the statute of limitations and their perpetrator, the person that hurt them, could not have been sued civilly or prosecuted criminally for that conduct because the victim had waited too long. And I think legislators decided that really wasn't fair to the victims because 
since we've all been four or five at one point in our lives, that there are things that happen at that age that you don't remember, that you don't talk about, or that you maybe you don't want to talk about until you get older. So Utah sort of tweaked the statute a little bit, and then it became eight years in cases involving children, and then it became some period of time after you turned 18. So once you turned 18, then the clock started on the statute of limitations. California has enacted a law just within the last few days giving childhood victims of sexual abuse more time to decide whether to file lawsuits. Several states have done this, and um, it's in part in response to some of the things that we've seen with, for example, the Boy Scouts, certain church leaders, and things like that where we've recognized that people have been victimized and they don't have a remedy. Um, The law that was signed Sunday, yesterday, by the governor in California gives victims of childhood sexual abuse until the age of 40 or five years after discovery uh, time to file the lawsuit, whichever comes later. Uh, the previous limit was the victim had to file before they turned 26 or within three years from discovery. Now, you might be asking, what does from discovery mean? A lot of times these victims, believe it or not, don't remember or don't recognize or don't know that they were victimized um, um, because if you if you can imagine a small child and I don't want to get graphic by any means but small children who are injured often don't remember that or they take it out of their mind and it may be much much later in life that they finally come forward and say hey wait a minute my uncle or my scoutmaster or my religious leader abused me and I think something needs to be done that sort of takes you to the next question, which is if you're a prosecutor or a person filing these civil suits, how are you going to prove what happened 20, 30, 40 years ago? But that's a slightly different question that maybe we can come back to in just a minute. What this law does in California is gives these victims until the age of 40 or five years after they discover the abuse to file their civil lawsuits. Let me tell you what the law is in Utah. Utah law reads as follows, that an individual who is the victim of a child abuse can file at any time. There is no statute of limitations in Utah uh, when it comes to um, child abuse, at least from the criminal perspective. And from the civil perspective, it's very much the same. Let me just read you the statute here in Utah. A victim may file... Now, this is there's a huge statute in Utah that deals with all of our statutes of limitations. Filing for a if you're in an auto accident or filing because somebody breached a contract or filing because um, you're otherwise injured in some capacity. Utah law reads as follows. A victim may file a civil action against a perpetrator. We're talking about child victims for intentional or negligent sexual abuse suffered as a child at any time, at any time. That means in Utah, there is no statute of limitations. And the same is true in our criminal world in crimes involving uh, children there is no statute of limitations. Uh, just as a side note, there's no statute of limitations on murder cases either. Um, those can be brought at any time. And another sort of tweak side note, and that is that if the perpetrator leaves the state, the statute doesn't run. So if somebody abuses, well, abuse, there's no statute of limitations. But let's say somebody commits a drunk driving and you've got two years to bring the, the case and they leave the state for a couple of years. Uh, doesn't then their two-year clock doesn't even start until they get back. Um, that's for victims of child abuse uh, in Utah, no statute of limitations. Um, 
in California, it, there is still a statute of limitations, and that is it takes the victim all the way until they're age 40 or five years from the discovery of the abuse. Um, like I said, in the criminal world in Utah, we don't have a statute of limitations. In the civil world in California, there still is one, but it's been expanded from age 26 for the victim all the way up to age 40, from three years from discovery for the victim all the way up to five years. Um, this is... Um, this is um, this is a kind of a wave in the country. Let me just read you from uh, one of the Democratic uh, legislators here in California. She says, and this is Lorena Gonzalez, who authored the bill, the idea that someone who is assaulted as a child can actually run out of time to report that abuse is outrageous. It goes on to say, this is the article, California is at least the third state this year to take this step. Earlier this year, New York and New Jersey raised their statute of limitations to age 55. So we're not talking about the number of years since the event occurred now, which is what almost all statute of limitations are, but it's the age of the victim. And those states have bumped that up to age 55, um, which according to the New York sources, said led to hundreds of lawsuits being filed against hospitals, schools, the Roman Catholic Church, and uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Um, wow. I mean, what we're going to do and, and when we watch these occur is, is going to be pretty troubling. Another thing that I've noticed, and, and I don't know how California is going to address this, but we can't enact what we call ex post facto law. We can't say, well, the statute of limitations in 1980 was this, but we're going to change it to that. California seems to have done that by suspending their statute of limitations for three years. Generally in Utah, the statute of limitations is applied at the time the crime allegedly occurred. So we don't get to go back and say, well, wait a minute, you know, my the statute of limitations hasn't run. Although our, our courts have loosened that up a little bit and are allowing now these victims of child sexual abuse and physical abuse to bring actions against their perpetrators at a much later age. We also allow prosecuting attorneys, district attorneys and, and attorneys general to bring these criminal actions pretty much at any time. What that's going to do is open up a floodgate of, of lawsuits, um, whether that's good or bad, at least it gives these victims a remedy. At least it gives them something they can do, something they can, they're not just, they're not just hamstrung by the fact that they've waited too long and they have this statute of limitations. Again, like I said, the prosecutors in a criminal case, the plaintiff's lawyers in a civil case still need to prove their case. They still need to have something to back up the case. And if there's no forensic evidence, there's no confession, there's no witnesses or nothing like that, they, those cases may still be very hard to prove 20, 40, 30 years later if there's nothing that can establish that, in fact, the act occurred. Wow. Uh, we'll, we'll watch that closely and see what other states intend to do here. Um, it's now 2.45. We're going to take our last break before our final section, and we'll be back in about three minutes. Thank you. Inside Sources. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. Welcome back to Inside Sources. My name is Greg Scordis, and this is our final segment. We've had a lot of interesting topics today and some good call-ins. It was fun to spend a little bit of time with the two mayoral candidates. And uh, just reviewing some of your texts, there was a question I wished I would have asked both of those candidates. Um, and it's only it's just, it's just a, a question that you kind of wonder how they would, would take this. But uh, one of our texters says, what are the 
candidates take on the topic of medical marijuana. I mean, you kind of wonder what anybody thinks about that right now and our legislature, the way they've sort of butchered it and our um, various county attorneys, both in Salt Lake and Davis County, sort of wrestling with how to deal with that. I don't know if it's a city issue or a mayoral issue, but that would have been an interesting take for them. Another uh, texter says, how does renewable energy from Rocky Mountain Power reduce pollutants from cars in the Salt Lake Valley? Um, Interesting, but I think both candidates had some very very good subjects they wanted to talk about as it relates to renewable energy, as it revolves around air quality, and we could have had a lot of fun with that. A lot of texters coming in wondering about why we are um, being hard on police officers. And I didn't mean to be hard on police officers. And I, I really was trying to sort of paint a picture as to what it's like to be in their shoes, what it's like to sort of sit on the other side of those body cams, the person that's actually wearing the body cam and walking into a situation and seeing something that they have no idea what they're about to get into um, and reacting to that within the seconds that they have. Um, But a lot of callers, a lot of texters rather, um, are sort of wondering if we were really taking the side of the police officers. I don't, I wasn't, that wasn't my intent at all, even though I did disclose, hopefully accurately, that a lot of my career has been spent representing police officers and and helping them in their their situations. Um, Texter is concerned about the way we spun the uh, Donald Trump video. And I don't know how else to do that. I mean, I really don't. Um, uh, people are people are upset. Um, I tried to uh, maybe keep it as objective as possible. Um, there was a lot of talk that the president didn't know about this video, that he didn't uh, approve of it. And one texter says, spin it all you want. Um, that was to me directly, I assume. He authorizes everything. He means it. He has declared that his supporters would not care if he shot someone on Fifth Avenue. It was at Mar-a-Lago. He is pathologically afflicted and should be removed. KSL, and of all places, should know about troubled people who are armed. The video, another one says the video is disgusting. It's base. If that's his base, they're truly deplorable. Um, and another texter was upset that I liked the music in that. Well, it was a kind of a, one of the songs I used to like. But anyway, um, it looks like most of our texters are concerned about the president getting off on this. So we're kind of all over the board today. Um, we uh, we talked to the mayoral candidates. We talked about these officer-involved shootings. Uh, we've still got this missing CEO in Utah. So many questions that we don't have the answer to there. What's going to happen with her family? What's going to happen with her situation? Is the San Jose Police Department going to be in any way responsible for this? Is there something they could have done? And is there something that, had they reacted sooner, may have saved her life? I mean, that's going to be the the, the ultimate question here when the medical examiner in California starts taking a look at this. Um, And finally, uh, we ended with the statute of limitations issue, and I suppose I complicated a little bit just from some of the texters wondering, um, sort of asking for an explanation. I don't want to bore you all with that. But typically in American courts, there's what we call a statute of limitations. That is a period of time when an action has to be brought, whether it's criminal or civil. Uh, Criminal in Utah, like I said, two years for most misdemeanors, four years for most all felonies. Um, that was increased for crimes involving children to no statute limitations, crimes involving the death of a person, that is our homicide statute, and that includes the whole 
panoply of homicides from murder down to manslaughter. Um, no statute limitations there. Uh, that is that the state can bring those actions at any time. But it's interesting to me. It's always interesting to me when I see what other states are doing and we watch them uh, try to enact laws that make sense. Um, I, I served on the Utah Commission on Criminal and Juvenile Justice for probably 18 years. And we worked with the legislature at that time on trying to enact laws. And I remember our Victims' Bill of Rights that was a big topic back in the early 90s, you know, how can victims in criminal cases become more involved in the prosecution? And we enacted a Victims' Bill of Rights. We also tweaked the statute of limitations and allowed victims' voices to be heard much longer and many, many years after, after they had previously been allowed to react. We now allow victims in criminal cases to come in and speak. We allow victims and we require prosecutors now to have the input of a victim before they can do what's called plea bargaining. And previously, prosecutors were pretty much un, undeterred in whatever they wanted to do with a plea bargaining. Uh, the only, uh, when I was a prosecutor, our sort of our rule was as long as it doesn't hit the newspaper or, or, or the media, we're okay. Uh, but those days are long gone, and now uh, when a judge accepts a plea bargain or a sentencing or something with respect to a child victim or a really any victim, um, the judge will ask the prosecutor, have you consulted the victim and does the victim approve of this resolution? So um, it's it's been interesting during my uh, career to watch how the laws have evolved and to watch how they continue to revolve. And what, what happens here is like like you might expect, our legislatures often act in sort of a knee-jerk fashion. That is, we wait until there's a problem. We wait until a situation comes up. And so in California, we've had a situation come up involving a lot of young men who have claimed to have been victimized by their scout leaders. And they're now going back going, well, that happened 20 years ago. It happened 30 years ago. It happened when I was, I mean, scouts are really that sort of 12 to 16 age group, the Boy Scouts and the Cub Scouts start even younger than that. Um, but these, this conduct, these, these events that occurred where these kids were victimized isn't reported until much later. And it was correct for the California legislature to come in and say, well, does that really seem fair? Is that something we want is for people who are victimized at a young age to have no remedy because they waited too long. On the other hand, I'll just say this, it is, it is, good to have some statute of limitations and some closure on cases, both criminal and civil, and some idea that if you're going to bring an action, do it timely, do it at a time when the case can be prosecuted effectively, when it can be investigated appropriately, uh, when the witnesses are available. And so there's a purpose for statute of limitations. There's a purpose why we have these laws, but also in response to things that are happening uh, in our country and with the Boy Scouts and with certain church groups and um, athletic coaches, that type of thing, uh, maybe opening the doors a little bit. So I applaud the state of California. I think other states are following that. And again, Utah, no statute of limitations at all. So that should wrap up our show today. My name is Greg Scordis. I've enjoyed doing the show. I think I'm going to be here again tomorrow. Um, you're Wait, lo- what does that mean? <laughs> well, they asked me to, but you know, you walk out of the studio every day and you're like, well, so what do you think? Uh, but it looks like I'm here again tomorrow. It's it's nice. I don't know how you do this every day, Jeff. I'm speaking with Jeff Kaplan, the host of our next show. Um, but you're here every day. I come here three hours before the show starts and try to come up with an agenda and produce it 
and work with a, a, a producer who helps me with that. But then tomorrow you, you do the same See, thing. See, it's not muscle memory. In a courtroom, I'm sure you're fine and I'd be shivering. Yeah, but in a courtroom, I have, I have police reports and evidence and witnesses and I kind of know where I'm going. But here it's a little different. But anyway, I admire what you guys do and, and it's been a lot of fun. That's Looking nice. forward to your show today. All right.